From New York, this is Democracy Now! Hate will not prevail in America. Racism will not prevail in America. Domestic terrorism will not prevail in America. And to make it real clear, silence on this issue, both public and private, from the private sector, silence is complicity. During a trip to Florida, President Biden denounced last week's shooting in Jacksonville when a racist gunman shot dead three black people at a store near a historically black college. We'll speak to Bishop William Barber, who links the murders to the hateful rhetoric of Governor Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump and others. Then we look at the role of psychologists in devising the CIA's torture program as a judge at Guantanamo tosses the confession of a man who was repeatedly tortured at CIA black sites. We'll speak to the psychologist Roy Edelson, author of the new book, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. Democracy relies upon civil society organizations that are willing to stand up to protect human rights and oppose government misconduct. In my new book, Doing Harm, I describe how, during the War on Terror, the American Psychological Association failed to uphold these fundamental responsibilities. In my view, the consequences have been tragic. For detainees victimized by abuse and torture, for the profession of psychology, and for the country as a whole. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Biden administration will, for the first time, send munitions containing depleted uranium to Ukraine, even though the weapons are radioactive and their use causes contamination that's hazardous to human health. Reuters reports the armor-piercing uranium munitions are part of a new military aid package for Ukraine set to be unveiled in the next week. This follows a previous decision by the Biden administration to arm Ukraine with cluster munitions, which have been banned by an international treaty ratified by more than 110 countries. This week, a new report by the Cluster Munition Coalition found 916 deaths and injuries from cluster bombs in Ukraine last year. In Ukraine, Russian drones Sunday struck port infrastructure on the Danube River that's been used by Ukraine to export food and fertilizer to world markets. Ukrainian officials said at least one of the drones crashed in neighboring Romania, a NATO member nation, though officials in Bucharest denied the allegations. In Moscow, the Russian Ministry of Defense said Russian air defenses shot down three Ukrainian drones as they attacked Moscow, the latest in an escalating series of drone strikes on Russian territory. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Sunday he's firing his defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, amidst Ukraine's stalled counteroffensive and a widening corruption probe. Zelensky nominated former Crimean lawmaker Rustam Umarov to replace him. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin has ruled out rejoining the Black Sea grain deal until Western nations withdraw sanctions put in place after Russia invaded Ukraine. Putin spoke from the Black Sea resort town of Sochi Monday after meeting with the Turkish president, Tayyip Erdogan. Erdogan. As I've said repeatedly, we were simply forced to make this decision since Western countries have blocked and continue to block the implementation of the grain deal in terms of ensuring the access of Russian agricultural producers to the world markets. That is, they refuse to lift the sanctions on the export of our grain and fertilizers. U.S. officials say North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will soon travel to Russia for talks with President Putin. The two leaders are expected to discuss an arms deal that would see North Korea provide artillery ammunition to Russia for its war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Financial Times reports lenders at four of China's biggest banks have stepped in to extend billions of dollars to Russian banks that have faced sanctions since Russia invaded Ukraine. The U.N. Refugee Agency is warning as many as 1.8 million people will flee Sudan by the end of the year as fighting continues between rival military factions. The U.N. estimates the conflict has already displaced about a million people. Another 800,000 are expected to leave Sudan in the coming months. Meanwhile, Doctors Without Borders is reporting Sudanese refugees arriving in South Sudan are suffering from an alarming rise of measles and malnutrition. In the Sudanese capital of Khartoum, many residents say they cannot afford basic necessities, including bread. Bread is available, but people cannot buy it. The loaf of bread costs 70 Sudanese pounds or 12 U.S. cents. People cannot afford it. This price is too high for them. In Gabon, the leader of last week's military coup has been sworn in as interim president. During a ceremony Monday, General Brice Oligi Ngema promised, quote, free, transparent and credible elections to restore civilian rule, but gave no timeline for elections. The military coup ousted President Ali Bongo, whose family had ruled the oil-rich nation since 1967. Oligi is a cousin of the ousted president and the former head of Gabon's presidential guard. Meanwhile, in Niger, tens of thousands of protesters rallied Saturday outside a French military base demanding French troops leave Niger. Tension has been escalating between Niger and its former colonial ruler since a military coup in Niger in late July. Niger's new military leaders have ordered French troops and France's ambassador to leave the country, but France has ignored the request. Protesters in Niger Saturday called on the French to leave them alone. People say, oh no, people get paid to go out and protest. That's a thing of the past. It's the people of Niger who are out here. You'd have to be blind not to see it. We're fed up. We want to be responsible for ourselves. People think we're babies. Leave us alone. Is that too much to ask? Chinese President Xi Jinping will skip the G20 summit when it convenes in India next weekend. On Monday, China's foreign ministry said Premier Li Chang will instead lead China's delegation to talks in Delhi. This comes amidst a worsening border dispute between China and India, with thousands of troops deployed to a disputed region of the Himalayas. 
A major new report backed by the United Nations finds invasive species are spreading around the world at an unprecedented rate, driving extinctions, transmitting diseases, and threatening food supplies for millions of people. Ecologist Helen Roy, who co-authored the report by the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, says more than 3,500 harmful invasive species are seriously threatening nature while causing untold economic damage to humans. Of those costs that are tangible that we've been able to gather together, we can see it's $423 billion annually. But we also know that looking back, then these figures have been quadrupling every 10 years. And we have no reason to think that that isn't going to be happening into the future. The first Africa Climate Summit opened Monday in Nairobi. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry pushed for the establishment of a carbon market, but many African climate justice activists pushed back against the idea. Ahead of the summit, Oxfam slammed wealthy nations for delivering a, quote, pittance to help East Africa confront the climate crisis. According to Oxfam, over 31 million people are currently facing acute hunger across Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia and South Sudan, due in part to the climate crisis, which has disproportionately impacted the region. In Spain, at least three people were killed. Three others are missing as unprecedented rainfall inundated Madrid and other cities Monday. Flooding swept away bridges, halted commuter rail traffic. In Greece, where authorities have finally brought unprecedented wildfires under control, at least one person's dead, another missing after intense rainstorm battered mountain towns. Forecasters say some parts of central Greece could see over a foot of rain in just 24 hours. That's nearly double the annual average rainfall totals for the capital Athens. Here in the United States, a scorching summer heat wave brought record temperatures to central and eastern states Labor Day. Parts of Wisconsin and Minnesota suffered triple-digit heat Monday, the unofficial last day of summer. In Minnesota, guards ordered a lockdown of the Stillwater Men's Prison Sunday after prisoners refused to return to their cells to protest dangerous conditions. Advocates say some 1,200 prisoners spent the holiday weekend with no access to showers or ice and limited time for recreation due to understaffing. Temperatures outside the prison, much of which lacks air conditioning, approached 100 degrees Fahrenheit Sunday and Monday. In Nevada, tens of thousands of participants at the annual Burning Man Festival were left stranded over the weekend after torrential rainfall covered normally dry campgrounds in mud and made roads impassable for decades. Attendees had been told to shelter in place since Friday. The extreme weather capped a Burning Man festival that proceeded despite the objections of climate activists who, on August 27th, peacefully blockaded a two-lane highway leading to the campgrounds to demand Burning Man ban private jets, single-use plastic, and unlimited use of generators and propane tanks. That protest was broken up by a Nevada tribal police officer who rammed into their blockade, injuring a protester before drawing a pistol, tackling a demonstrator, and threatening to shoot activists. Get on the ground! 
In a statement, the Seven Circles Alliance Activist Group, which organized the protest, responded, quote, the excessive response is a snapshot of the institutional violence and police brutality that's being shown to anyone who's actively working to bring about systemic change within the United States, including the climate movement, unquote. Burning Man organizers estimate the festival's carbon footprint at about 100,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year, equivalent to the annual emissions of 22,000 gas-powered cars. A judge in Florida has struck down congressional maps created by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, ruling they violate Florida's Constitution by diminishing black voters' ability to elect the candidate of their choice. The maps were approved last year over the objections of black Florida lawmakers who staged an impromptu sit-in protest against the congressional redistricting plan. In other Florida news, DeSantis backed out of a planned meeting Saturday with President Biden, who traveled to Florida to survey damage from Hurricane Idalia. And Republican state lawmakers in Alabama continue to defy a Supreme Court order to redraw congressional maps after they were found to have violated the 1965 Voting Rights Act by diluting the power of black voters. The Guardian reports a new map proposed by Republicans still includes only one majority black district, making another Supreme Court challenge likely. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we speak to Bishop William Barber, who links the racist murders in Jacksonville, Florida, to the hateful rhetoric of Governor Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, and others. Stay with us. Jacksonville musician Khan Jamal. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We're looking now at the rise in racist attacks in the United States and a new campaign to take back the mic from those who seed hate. The latest deadly attack came just over a week ago in Jacksonville, Florida, when a white supremacist gunman shot and killed three black people at a Dollar General store, then shot himself dead. The gunman used racial slurs, had a swastika-emblazoned assault-style AR-15 rifle, along with a handgun. He attacked the store in a predominantly black neighborhood after being turned away from the HBCU campus of Edward Waters University, the historically black college. 
Law enforcement officials say there's no question the killings were racially motivated. The three victims were Angela Carr, Gerald Gallion, and A.J. Laguerre, Jr. This is Sabrina Rozier, grandmother of Gallion's four-year-old daughter. My grandbaby keeps saying is, where's my daddy? And all I can do is grab her because I don't have the words right now. I thought racism was behind us, but evidently it's not. You was a coward. You went in and shot these innocent people for nothing that you didn't even know. That's Sabrina Rozier speaking with CNN. Federal law enforcement has opened a civil rights investigation into the attack as a possible hate crime and act of domestic violent extremism. This comes as federal data shows hate crimes are on the rise in the United States, that black people were targeted in half of all the racially motivated hate crimes. On Saturday, President Biden addressed the Jacksonville attack when he was in Florida to tour storm damage after Hurricane Adalia. We're still reeling from the shooting rampage near Edward Waters University and HBCU last weekend. A terrorist act driven by racial hatred and animus. Our hearts are with you, those of you who are affected and all your families. A terrorist act, as I said, driven by hatred and animus. And ladies and gentlemen, let me say this clearly. Hate will not prevail in America. Hate will not prevail in America. Racism will not prevail in America. Domestic terrorism will not prevail in America. And to make it real clear, silence on this issue, both public and private, from the private sector, silence is complicity. We must not, we will not remain silent. President Biden was in Florida to tour the hurricane damage. Governor DeSantis refused to meet him there. Uh, he went around with Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Just last year, a gunman targeting black people killed 10 people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, the Topps grocery store. In 2021, a gunman killed eight people, including six Asian-American women, in Atlanta. The Jacksonville, Florida shooter reportedly left a suicide note and other writings, writings that laid out his racist ideology. Now, a diverse group of faith leaders is calling on elected leaders in Florida and nationwide to, quote, cease and desist from sowing division and hate. The move comes after Republican Florida governor and presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis spoke at a vigil where he was booed by the crowds with one person shouting out, your policies cause this. DeSantis and Florida Republicans have imposed racist laws, including rolling back diversity and inclusion policies and attacking African-American studies. DeSantis also opposes gun law reform. The new Take Back the Mic from Haters campaign will also mark this month's 60th anniversary of the horrific bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, often called Bombingham at the time, that killed four young black girls September 15, 1963. For more, we're joined by Bishop William Barber, president and senior lecturer at Repairers of the Breach, founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. His new piece for The Guardian is headlined, The Racist Murders in Jacksonville Didn't Happen in a Vacuum. Words came first. 
Bishop Barber, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, talk about the context in which that young, white, black shooter, leaving behind racist manifestos, first tried to get into a historically black college when turned away by a brave security guard, opened fire at a, a dollar store. Yeah, I mean, Bishop Reed of the AME's church in Florida, the oldest black denomination, has been working with myself and others to bring together a diverse group of clergy, Jews, Muslims, Christians, uh, to actually have a whole season of resistance that will continue even after the actions. This coming Thursday, having a press conference in to announce what's going on, calling for 10 days of fasting, confession, and repentance and for politicians to cease and resist or resign, and then calling for the communities to rise up, take back the mic, not let hate have the last word, and to mobilize and register to vote. On the Saturday, um, um, uh, next Friday, the Friday um, uh, will be a massive leaflet drop of these cease and desist by students, black and white and Asian students in Tallahassee, leaving from the conference of the AME Church. And then on Saturday, the 16th, the one day anniversary, right after the bombing of the four girls in Birmingham, uh, there will be a massive gathering in Jacksonville, diverse people coming together and denouncing all of this hate. You think about we got to talk about what, not just who has killed these people and who, uh, what is killing across this country. DeSantis and others are spewing hate rhetoric, hate against black history, hate against trans people, hate uh, against um, uh, women, uh, hate against immigrants. And the suggestion is that these are the problem. Now, we know that this is this, this, this division and distraction. They use hate rhetoric and culture wars to distract from the areas that he's failed as a governor, which I'd like to talk about in a second. But this has a history. In the 19, early 1900s, Woodrow Wilson spewed hate, called birth of a nation that glorified the Klan, the history that the nation needed. And in a few years, what did you have? You had Red Summer, where black men and others were killed and run out of town all over uh, uh, this country in reaction to what was being spewed by the president. In 1963, you had an Alabama governor, George Wallace, say segregation yesterday, today and tomorrow. He loosed the idea that black people were the problem, that fight for integration was the problem. By the end of the year, you had people blown up in Birmingham, uh, dogs sicked on children, children blown up uh, in, in Alabama. And if you continue down this road, in, in 1960, August 27, 1960, the Florida legislature, the, the extremists, the Dixiecrats, were railing against integration. They were pushing all kind of divisive rhetoric. Even the governor, who was a moderate at the time, Collins, but he had said that the Supreme Court had overreached. What happened? You had the axe handle mob in Jacksonville, where people, white mobs brought axe handles and beat black men while the police watched until black men started fighting back, and then they joined in. So there is this history of not just who kills, but what kills and what creates the atmosphere. And spewing hate from the most powerful levels of government gives license. It, it others people. It puts it in the ethos and suggests that it's all right to eliminate folks. So what happens is this guy goes to a black HBCU. 
I mean, he's been hearing all the while that black history is a problem. It's a lie. Wokeness is a lie. So if he's already skewed toward racism, then he begins to hear from the most powerful people, this is what you do. It can trigger. We're not saying DeSantis did to kill it. But as Dr. King said at the death and um, funeral of the four girls that were killed, he said, we must not just talk about who, but what, what killed them. And lastly, I want to put this on the record. It's not just DeSantis. Down in Florida, he has gotten black people, certain black scholars, to join with him in lie uh, about black history and calling for the elimination of courses. He's gotten black people to join him, some of them, to join him in pushing against affirmative action program. Their guess is guilty as well, because it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. Once you spew this stuff and loose it and suggest that people are the problem, they're not just people with problems, but problem people, it can create all kinds of justifications in the ethos for violence and other kinds of death. And Bishop Barber, I wanted to ask you, in the same climate of uh, of intolerance and hate that is uh, promoted by some of these top Florida leaders, we see a judge uh, rule in, on a redistricting case, congressional redistricting in North Florida, saying that DeSantis and the other uh, political leaders violated the state's constitution, ordering them to create a new map. Your response to this news? Well, you know, I know about that in North Carolina. We beat back extremists who redistricted, and we beat them in court, found out that they had engaged in racism with surgical intention. And what we know what redistricting is is another form of of diversion and, and division and lies, because what it says is that how, somehow people are cheating, somehow people are not doing right. But what the extremists, they want to cheat because they can't win. They can't win on policies. So what they want to do is create a situation where they stack, pack, and black and bleach black voters, not just so black people can't elect black people, but so black people and white people and others can't form fusion coalition to elect the candidates of their choice. And why do they do this? Why are they so afraid? Because DeSantis and those with him, they don't want to talk about the real record. That's why they redistrict illegally. That's why they engage in culture war. They don't want to talk about Florida. There are 9 million poor and low-wealth people, 44% of the state, and their policies aren't doing anything about that. They don't want to talk about the 7 million voters in Florida that are poor and low-wealth, and if just 3% of them would vote, that haven't voted, they could send any of them home. They don't want to talk about the fact that in Florida, over 4 million people make less than a living wage, while the legislature there and the governor there have been blocking living wages. They don't want to talk about, that's 32% of white workers and 57% of black workers. They don't want to talk about the fact that you have over 2 million people in Florida, 2.5 million people who are uninsured, even during the pandemic, and that, that, that the life in Florida, the life expectancy went down in Florida. And one study shows that among Republicans, their life expectancy went down and it's directly connected to the ways DeSantis and others like him railed against vaccines, railed against um, protections during COVID. They don't want to talk about the fact that 8.4 million workers, 78% of the workforce do not have access to paid leave. They don't want to talk about when you end cuts in Medicaid, 800,000 people who lost access to health care. See, they support all of that, those policies. So they don't want to talk about this. So where do they want to focus? They want to focus on cultural wars and division and dissension. And they want to fight for redistricting, racist redistricting, which undermines the ability for votes to count. And that's why when we criticize them, we can't just talk about hate. 
we've got to make the connections. One of the things we've said to Democrats is don't just talk about the the deaths that are caused when somebody uh, uses a gun to kill. Connect that to the deaths that come when people are kept in poverty. Poverty is now the fourth leading cause of death. So if you are fighting addressing poverty and fighting addressing living wages and fighting addressing health care, that is also a form of death and a form of violence. We have to connect the dots. Racist voter suppression creates death because when you suppress the right to vote and you stack and pack and bleach black voters, you allow extremists to get elected who then, once they get elected, they block health care, they block living wages, they block addressing poverty. And when you do those things, people die. Bad public policy creates death. Uh, racist rhetoric and division can create a context of death, give people the license to kill. All of it is deadly. And we must take back the mic, raise up an army of love and truth and life that will say we're not having it anymore. We're going to call you to cease, desist, to repent, to confess. And if you won't, then we've got to mobilize and send some people home so so that they won't have the power and the mic to continue to do what they're doing. They may have the same opinion. But they won't have the power and the power of the office and the mic to continue to spew their divisive rhetoric. And, and Bishop Barber, I wanted to ask you, in the, uh, this recent hurricane, Idalia, clearly the country is facing and the world is facing more and more natural disasters. So many of them fueled by climate change. President Biden goes down to, to Florida and the governor DeSantis doesn't even bother to meet with him. Your, uh, your response to the president's words, especially he, he, he spoke out against uh, the, uh, the attack, this racist attack as well as uh, offering assistance to the uh, people of Florida uh, ravaged by the uh, Idalia. Well, you know, DeSantis, though he's trained and educated even at Yale and got a law degree, he's rooted in racism and meanness. He's decided that this is his way to office, distraction, division, uh, deflection, uh, focusing on culture wars so that he cannot be labeled as a failed governor. That's what he really is, not a presidential candidate. He's a failed governor. Anytime you have this many poor, low-wage people and low-wage workers and you haven't addressed those issues, you're a failed governor. The president was right to call out the racism and call out the rhetoric and say that if private or publicly, if you're quiet, then you're complicit. I would also encourage the president to go one step further, though, and that is to say it's not just the racist rhetoric. The racist rhetoric and the cultural wars and the hatred toward women, the hatred toward immigrants, the hatred toward the trans community is a form of deflection. And then the president run the record and show how this same person who's spewing all of this division, guess what? He's not addressing the issue of poverty in your state. He's not addressing uh, more than 40 percent of the people working for less than a living wage, even though the people voted for living wage to happen in Florida. He's not addressing the more than 2.5 million people that don't have health care. In other words, connect the rhetoric, not just to the deaths that are caused by someone like the young man who did what he did in creating the ethos of death, but actually show how they are failing in their roles as governors and legislators. And that's why they want the division and the deflection and deception so that we don't see how they're also engaging in forms of policy violence and policy murder, which is hurting the lives of people. And it doesn't have to be that way. Imagine if the same governor was bringing people together, 
was raising the minimum wage, was ensuring health care, and those things, Florida would be a very, very different place. He does not want people to look at that, and so he's posturing himself like the Dixiecrat governors of the old South, and we need a new South to rise that's not fooled by that, that brings black people together, white people together, brown people, Asian, Latinos, gay, straight, it doesn't matter who you are, and says we're not having it anymore, we're taking back the mic, we're mobilizing, and we're going to do it, because the fact of the matter is, Ron, if just 2 to 3% of poor and low-wealth voters in Florida who have not voted chose to vote an agenda, they, they could send any candidate home, including Ron DeSantis. Poor and low-wealth folk have the power. That's what Bishop Frank Reed and others are saying. They understand, and why they're calling for this is that there comes a time, the Bible says, when the stone that the builders rejected have to rise up and become the cornerstone of a new reality. That's what we're going to launch on Thursday and beyond. It must happen not just in Florida, but across the country. Take back this mic. And, and, and Bishop Barber, I wanted to ask you, uh, Ron DeSantis is still only a, uh, he's not the, the major candidate for the Republican Party. Obviously, Donald Trump still remains the major candidate. And could you comment on Trump's virtual silence on all of these uh, racist attacks that have been occurring, these hate crimes around the country? Well, you know, he laid the foundation for it, so he doesn't have to say anything. His very presence has already laid it down. He does enough at his rally. I mean, he's the he's the provocateur uh, par excellence. You know, he's the one that has really laid the playbook down. And Don, Ron DeSantis is is playing it. But I think Ron DeSantis in some ways is more dangerous than Trump because of his background, his education, uh, that he's been a governor. Trump had never held political office. And that Ron DeSantis is doing all these things as a governor. Right now, he's caught up, you know, in the popularity of Trump among people who are mean and racist. You know, he doesn't have that kind of play nationally, but he has that kind of play within the party. And he has a lot of play within the country because of the ongoing history of racism and division and, and, and you know, hatred and meanness sells and works and othering people turns a lot of people on. That's why folk that don't agree with it, we can't stay home. You can't have low voter turnout because that allows extremists to get elected. But DeSantis, I think, in some ways, and the, these legislatures are more dangerous than Trump because they actually can enact policy. You see, they're actually passing policy. And that's what I don't want people to miss. I said to some people, it's it's okay for us to get upset when he uh, attacks black history. Uh, it's, it's right for us to be bothered with and, and move when these folk have been killed. But let's not think that there wasn't a big problem before this. And there weren't problems beyond just the rhetoric. Go back to the policy. DeSantis is a failed governor. He's a man that only got elected the first time by 1.5% of the vote. He didn't get elected overwhelmingly. And then the second time, I think maybe about three or four percent. He's not even invincible. But as long as he has the mic, as long as he has that legislature, they can continue to push and promote not only rhetoric, but policy. And the, both the rhetoric and the policy is deadly. That's what makes DeSantis and these other um, extremists in these state houses and, 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 and legislators even more formidable in some way than Trump, because they actually have legislated. Now, right now, as they say, Trump right now has, you know, this popularity within the body of extremism. But make no mistake, these guys are not just running for office for right now. They're running. They're hoping Trump goes to jail. They're hoping they can step in afterwards. And if you listen to the Republicans that are running, there's not a dime of difference. There's not a penny of difference between them and the policies of Trump. 
The only thing they're differing is the antics of Trump in, in, in terms of the way he has done some things uh, seemingly illegal. But they have the same policy, the same rhetoric, the same division, the same deception, the same denial of dealing with policy. It's the same thing. Well, All- speak. Speaking of taking the mic, um, Bishop Barber, uh, when—after that uh, young white male shooter uh, killed three people, black people, in Jacksonville, um, there was this vigil, and Governor Ron DeSantis took the mic. Um, But he was booed roundly by the crowds. One attendee shouted out, your policies cause this. I want to play that clip. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is here. So you can hear what was going on at that vigil. Um, So there you have just the crowd essentially taking the mic. But then you have in Tennessee, a young man you know well just celebrated his 28th birthday, the legislator, Justin Jones, who is thrown out, um, along with another Justin, Justin Pearson, one represents Nashville, the other Memphis, of the state legislature. Yeah, Justin Jones was was, was silenced. And now, right, uh, then he was thrown out. They spend a lot of money having to redo the election. He's voted right back in by Nashville. And then last week, he is silenced by the legislature. This is the last um, minute we have. But if you can talk about what's happening. Well, a couple of things. Justin Jones got elected in the most diverse district in Tennessee. Let's note that. That's why he's such a, a, a thing of fear to the extremists. Also, he got silenced when he went to the floor to put a slate of policies, 12 things that he's calling on legislators to join him in fighting for. He, he's not just dealing in the emotionalism. He's actually dealing in policy. Uh, DeSantis was booed, should have been booed, because the only reason he should have been there was to get on his knees and repent for how he has helped create an atmosphere and an ethos of othering that and, and the vision that gives license to this kind of violence. We've seen it down through history. But I also want to say to Floridian, even before this happened, he should have been booed. He should have been booed for the way that he has not dealt with poverty. He should have been booed for the way he's not dealt with living wages. He should have been booed for the way he's blocked health care. He should have been booed for the way he lied and, and caused people to die, in essence, by saying you don't need to get vaccine. He has a whole record that needs to be booed, and that's what I'm arguing for. He needs not just for when he has attacked uh, Black history, uh, and in this moment, sure, this is what we see here, and all that rhetoric has created such a bad atmosphere. But look at his whole record, and let's take the mic and raise up and mobilize all over the country, starting in Florida, people who will not be about partisan politics, but will be about principal politics and say, if you are going to use the mic to spread division, deception and and distraction and create an ethos of death and violence, we're going to take the mic from you, send you home the best way we can uh, uh, in love and through our votes. Our votes are going to speak. Our voices are going to speak because what we cannot have in this moment is leaders who use powerful positions to create 
a, a, a kind of a pathological uh, uh, atmosphere and an ethos of violence and destruction. Well, it's been deadly in the past and it's deadly in the present. Bishop William Barber, we thank you for being with us, President Senior Lecturer at Repairs of the Breach, Founding Director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. We'll link to your new piece in The Guardian, The Racist Murders in Jacksonville Didn't Happen in a Vacuum, Words Came First. Coming up, we speak with a psychologist, Roy Idelson, whose new book is just out, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror. Back in 30 seconds. Theme for KVHS, Mandy, Indiana. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. A military judge at Guantanamo has thrown out the confessions of a Saudi man because he'd been subjected to waterboarding and other forms of torture at secret CIA black sites in Afghanistan, Thailand, Poland, Romania, and Morocco. Abdurrahim al-Nashiri was detained in 2002 and held for four years at the black sites. Then in 2006, he was transferred to Guantanamo, where he's been held ever since. He's alleged to have been the mastermind behind the bombing of the USS Cole. In 2007, he confessed to his role in the bombing, but a military judge, Colonel Lani Acosta Jr., recently tossed that confession, writing, quote, any resistance the accused might have been inclined to put up when asked to incriminate himself was intentionally and literally beaten out of him years before. Acosta went on to write, even if the 2007 statements were not obtained by torture or cruel and human and degrading treatment, they were derived from it, unquote. During a hearing last year, the psychologist James Mitchell admitted he and another psychologist, Bruce Jessen, had waterboarded al-Nashiri at a CIA black site. Al-Nashiri was also subject to mock executions, isolation, sleep deprivation and confinement inside a tiny wooden box. In June, the U.N. Working Group on Arbitrary Detention called for al-Nashiri's immediate release. The two psychologists involved in his torture, Mitchell and Jessen, have been paid at least $81 million by the CIA to develop and implement the CIA's post-9-11 torture program. According to the ACLU, torture methods devised by Mitchell and Jessen included slamming detained men into walls, stuffing them inside coffin-like boxes, exposing them to extreme temperatures and ear-splitting levels of music, starving them, inflicting various kinds of water torture, depriving them of sleep for days and chaining them in stress positions designed for pain and to keep them awake for days on end. The actions of Drs. Mitchell and Jessen 
led to other psychologists raising concerns about them with the American Psychological Association, the APA. But the concerns were dismissed by the organization's leadership, eager to please the administration of President George W. Bush. Anti-torture psychologists led a multi-year campaign challenging the collusion of the APA, the world's largest professional association of psychologists, about 150,000 of them, with the Pentagon and the CIA. The APA leadership was ultimately ousted, and the APA barred its members from participating in harsh interrogations. Well, we're joined now by the psychologist Roy Idelson. He's the author of the new book, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the War on Terror That's Just Out Today. He's a member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology and past president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. Uh, we welcome you, Dr. Idelson, to Democracy Now! I was wondering Thanks if you much, can. Amy. It's great to have you with us. I'm wondering if you can start off by talking about um, how that legacy um, of the APA. I mean, they ousted their leadership. You see it continuing today. Sure. The APA got definitely got off on a very bad foot right after the attacks of September 11th, and it took efforts by a community of dissident psychologists. It could, took over a decade for us to bring change in terms of APA's policy toward interrogation and detention operations, whether it's at CIA black sites or at Guantanamo. Uh, for a long time, the APA said that psychologists helped to keep these operations safe, legal, ethical, and effective. And none of that was true. Finally, in 2015, the APA, after Jim Risen's book, revealed information after an internal report authorized by the APA board revealed how the APA leadership had collaborated covertly with the military intelligence establishment. The APA made some important reforms uh, in the ethics arena. One of them is that psychologists cannot participate in national security interrogations. Another is that psychologists cannot be present at unlawful sites like Guantanamo unless they're working directly for the detainees or they're taking care of the military personnel, their health care. So it was a huge deal in 2015, this change. And APA leadership almost unanimously supported it. The problem is, or a problem, since then, things are step by step seeming to slip back. And there are powerful factions within the APA and outside of it, uh, primarily military psychologists and the Department of Defense, that want to turn back the clock. And they, in fact, want to expand the opportunities that are available for psychologists uh, to work in this arena where do no harm is at best secondary and sometimes off the table entirely. And Dr. Idelson, could you talk about uh, how you and other dissenters, the, the, the battle that you had, the reaction of your colleagues, uh, and uh, how you were uh, able to get the uh, association finally to take a stand? 
sure. It, again, it took years of dedicated effort by many people who were, became known as the dissident psychologists because we were opposed to APA's uh, policies in support of the, the Pentagon. Throughout that process, as we developed materials, as we pushed the APA uh, to change what it was doing, we were constantly confronted by, it was either stonewalling, they would ignore us, or they would make attempts to discredit us, uh, or they were, there were things that essentially amounted to threats against some of our members, uh, such as an ethics complaint filed against one member of the coalition, a defamation lawsuit filed against another coalition member. And in their public statements, they repeatedly, they did not like us, let's put it that way. One, one APA president referred to us as opportunistic commentators masquerading as scholars. A military psychologist in his self-congratulatory memoir referred to us as clowns who have never seen the whites of a terrorist side eyes. And another APA president uh, in her presidential column seemingly compared us to the Dementors. And if you're familiar with Harry Potter or the world of Harry Potter, Dementors are cloaked figures who feed on human happiness. So this was the position, the response we got repeatedly. It didn't stop us because we felt there was a lot at stake. And we, we lost many battles that I describe. But eventually, in part thanks to broader awareness, public awareness of what actually had unfolded, APA was, was kind of pushed to make a decision, are we going to continue to pretend that we're on the right side of this, or are we going to institute reforms? And fortunately, they picked the latter. I wanted to— Follow up on uh, our previous segment where we were talking about Roy DeSantis, um, uh, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor. Well, prior to entering politics, um, the presidential hopeful and Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, served in the Navy as an attorney at the U.S. prison at Guantanamo, uh, also served in Fallujah, Iraq. DeSantis's time at Guantanamo is coming under scrutiny after a former prisoner named Mansoura Daifi said that DeSantis had personally witnessed him being force-fed and tortured. Other prisoners have backed up Adaifi's account. DeSantis has denied authorizing force-feeding at Guantanamo. This is a clip. The Washington Post did a big deep dive on this today, actually, about what you did out there. One of the things they said was that you authorized the use of force-feeding that's some of the true. yeah, that's not true. Yeah, uh, any of the stuff uh, that people just to finish saying, force okay. feeding the detainees who were on hunger strike was that true? So I was a, I was a junior officer. I didn't have authority to authorize anything. Mm. There may have been a commander that would have done feeding if someone was going to die, but that was not something that I would have even had authority to do. So that's that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was Ron DeSantis in an interview uh, with Piers Morgan. But in an interview in 2018, he admitted to CBS Miami that he'd authorized force feeding. 
was a legal advisor. For those that were doing so things that would happen is the thing you notice the day you get down there is for these detainees, the jihad was still ongoing. Right. And they would wage jihad any way they can. Now, they're in a facility, so it's limited. But some of the things they would do, they would do hunger strikes. And you actually had three detainees that committed suicide with hunger strikes. So everything at that time was legal in nature one way or another. So the commander wants to know, well, how do I combat this? So one of the jobs of the legal advisor would be like, hey, you actually can force feed. Here's what you can do. Here's kind of the rules of that. So if you could respond to this, Roy Idelson, um, what DeSantis's dissent, uh, it, what his response uh, is and how you have shown what is going on at Guantanamo. Sure. The basically he in some of those interviews, he acknowledged what he did. He did not have, a, from what I understand, a high level position at Guantanamo, but he had a, le- a position of some legal expertise, and he recommended that one way to deal with the hunger strikes was to force feed. But not only did force feeding take place, the most brutal form of force feeding that's seemingly possible was used by the Department of Defense. There was no reason to do it that way, even if there was a decision to do it, which many international experts would say was unlawful. The, um, but DeSantis is just, I think, an example of a much broader concern, which is the, the number of politicians who have no concern for the detainees who were ever at Guantanamo or who are still there now. Um, there was a narrative built from the very beginning by the Bush administration that the people we have captured are the worst of the worst, and that torture is working, is an effective means to obtain information, and that using enhanced interrogation techniques has saved many American lives. None of that is true. They were not the worst of the worst. Most of the almost 800 detainees who were taken to Guantanamo were swept off up off of battlefields in Afghanistan or in exchange for bounty payments from the U.S. government. They had no connection to al-Qaeda, no connection to international terrorism. They spent years, in some cases decades, at Guantanamo anyway. And the message that the American people have gotten most often is that we needed to do this we did the right thing. These were very, very bad people. These were, these were people who would, you know, one general said, who would gnaw through the hydraulic lines in a C-17 to bring it down. And so DeSantis, what's most disturbing, I think, is that he has achieved the position he has, that he's a seemingly a serious contender to be president of the United States. And so in that way, he's, he's a bigger deal than many other politicians, but there are many in the Senate and the House. And, of course, we shouldn't forget that the president before this one also uh, had a very positive view of Guantanamo, a very negative view of the detainees that had been placed there, and was eager to, to add more people to Guantanamo. And, and Dr. Idelson, the— uh... 
American Psychological Association recently approved uh, operational guidelines uh, uh, for its members. Uh, your assessment of those guidelines, especially in view of the fact that they were written by, uh, uh, put together by military psychologists rather than ethicists or those harmed by past practices? Yeah, this is a very recent new concern, and that is that operational psychologists who are not clinicians, they're focused on issues of national security and national defense, they are eager to expand the opportunities for them to do work that doesn't involve avoiding harm, that doesn't involve informed consent, that doesn't involve oversight by outside ethical boards. And what they've managed to do, regrettably, is persuade the APA governing council to approve a new set of practice guidelines. And these guidelines, basically now they have this, the initial stamp of approval that APA is in favor of operational psychologists engaging in these kinds of activities. What's Three things, I guess, are especially noteworthy about those guidelines. One, as you noted, they were written by military psychologists, many of them, several of them, defense contractors. And none, no one on that task force uh, was an ethicist, or there was no representation for the people who have been tragically harmed by the abuse and torture that psychologists have produced uh, in terms of the treatment of detainees. The other two things are, one, those guidelines make no mention of this awful history of psychology and psychologists during the war on terror. It seems really peculiar for someone interested in practicing operational psychology to read a set of guidelines and not even be told about what has happened, about the history, the troubling history. And the other one is there's no mention of APA's current policies. So there are policies, as I mentioned, that restrict involvement in interrogations and that restrict involvement at Guantanamo and similar places. There's no mention of this in these guidelines at all. So it's, it's really troubling. Um, it's a sign, as I tried to suggest, that it feels as though APA is slipping, slipping back into positions that led to awful things. You know, and, you know, we, we haven't given up. You know, Dr. Idelson, Democracy Now! has covered this debate within the APA extensively over the years. In 2005, we went out to the APA conference in San Francisco. I mean, you had psychologists uh, putting bags over their heads and uh, looking like the photographs we saw at Abu Ghraib, uh, protesting what was going on. I was really struck by the number of uniformed psychologists, as you said, military psychologists there were within the association that were really direct the discussion. But we only have a minute, and I wanted to ask you about our, that top lead uh, in going into you about the military judge who, at Guantanamo who's just thrown out the confessions of the Saudi man because he'd been subjected to torture, waterboarding, and other forms of torture at CIA black sites in Afghanistan, Thailand, Poland, Romania, Morocco. I'm talking about Abdul Rahim al-Nashiri, who was detained over 20 years ago, held for four years at these black sites, then in 2006 transferred to Guantanamo, where he's been held ever since. Your response to, um, 
to the judge throwing out um, uh, what he has said because of torture. We just have 30 seconds. It's, in my view, it's an excellent decision. It may, it's, it's the right decision. We'll see whether it's appealed and what comes of that. I think it's important, though, to, to emphasize that Mr. al-Nashiri was far from the only detainee who was treated bu- brutally, who was abused, who was tortured, not just at CIA black sites, but at Guantanamo as well. So many of them have awful stories to tell if we're willing to listen. Uh, this was a, a massive problem, and Mr. al-Nashiri is a an imp- really important example of what happens when we we fail to um, uphold the principles our country is supposed to live Roy by. Roy Idelson, we want to thank you so much for being with us. His new book out today, Doing Harm, How the World's Largest Psychological Association Lost Its Way in the World.